Well, good morning, Salt Church. It is good. You guys are much more welcoming like than first service. I don't know if it's like the time. I don't know what it is, but nobody said anything first service. Kind of sad about it. I'm just kidding. You guys are my favorite, and you have my permission to tell first service people that you are my favorite service. I'm just kidding. All right. See, this is why I go over, because <laughs> I get on tangents. Um, well, it's always good uh, to be with you this morning, uh, worshiping together. Uh, if I have not yet met you yet, uh, my name is Brad Hart. I have the joy and the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here. Uh, and so I'd love to meet you after the service. Um, and uh, yeah. So in case uh, you're still stuck on Hallmark channels, uh, it is now New Year's Eve. We have moved to the next holiday, so it's okay. You can cut the Hallmark channels off. Uh, you can put away your Christmas decorations. It's totally acceptable. Um, but it is New Year's Eve. Uh, and as we consider uh, the turning of the page, if you will, or the literal turning of the page from 2023 to 2024, uh, there's, there's a lot of things that can cross our minds. Uh, if you look around the room, many of us have had different experiences this year. Uh, for some, it's easy. For some, it's been hard. For some, uh, it's been a roller coaster. Um, and you may, you may anticipate the new year. You may hesitate looking at the new year, whatever it may be. Uh, what a lot of us do, uh, and in fact, as studies would show and as the law of averages would tell us, about half of you in this room will participate in what we call New Year's resolutions, right? Uh, New Year's resolutions, we do it every single year. I don't know why, because 43% of those people that do them fail by January or by the end of January. Uh, and so we do that. And actually, this is a kind of a shocking statistic. I thought, it, I thought this was going to be much, much lower. In fact, closer to 0%. But actually, 9% of people make it all the way to the end of the year with their New Year's resolutions. So either they're setting the bar incredi incredibly low uh, or they're just overachievers. Who knows? Either way, uh, sometimes we do that stuff. Even if you don't do New Year's resolutions, you, you, you tend to think on, okay, well, what can be improved upon? What can be better? Uh, what can I look forward to next year? And, and goal setting is all good. Uh, we should do those things. We should plan. We should take meaningful steps. There's something to be said uh, about disciplining ourselves. Um, but it's vitally important for Christians to make sure that what we are doing and what we are setting our minds on are things that have eternal value and eternal significance. And so what we're going to see uh, in the text before us today really has nothing to do with uh, this theme of like making New Year's resolutions that stick or, you know, the five steps to a new year, new you, whatever that phrase is. Uh, that's not what this is. What we're going to see is that Jesus draws clear lines and makes clear distinctions uh, between really two categories. Um, and really those categories are people that claim Christ, and it's those that abide and those that don't abide. Uh, he makes those two distinctions, and then he goes through the results and the promises of the life that is dependent fully upon Christ. And so in the spirit of considering the closing of this year and embarking on a new year, uh, let's first consider the most important priority in our lives. In fact, I would say that we make a mistake saying that Jesus is our number one priority. What we should say is Jesus is the only priority in the only other category of our life. So let's consider that as we, as we come to this text. Uh, let's pray as well. Uh, Father, we come to you this morning now just humbly and um, just eager to hear from your truth and to see uh, what you have for us. 
we are so thankful and joyous that we get to worship you together uh, in this place. May we never take that for granted. And so as we come to this text this morning, God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear uh, your truth. Uh, may that penetrate our minds and, and, and motivate our hearts uh, and, and express itself uh, out in our hands to serve and to glorify you. Uh, for everything that we do is uh, for, for your glory. And may that be our aim this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right. If you have your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We're going to be in verses uh, 1 through 11. John 15, 1 through 11. Real famous uh, kind of uh, passage here that Jesus um, goes through. In fact, um, because you guys are my favorite, I didn't tell first for or first service people this. Uh, this was actually, I, I really got into this habit uh, early on of scripture memorization. This was the first um, passage that I committed myself to, to memorizing. Uh, and so I, I've been, really been in this passage, for, I don't know, 20, 25 years now. But um, this, this, I love this passage. And, and as we work our way through these 11 verses, uh, what I want to do is really kind of lay out this framework where we're going to be headed this morning. Uh, we're going to look at a few things. We're going to work, uh, look at uh, the picture that Jesus lays out for us. He really kind of paints this picture on this canvas and gives us this illustration. Uh, so we're going to look at that. We're going to look at the priority of the command that he gives. Uh, and then we're going to see the results of those who are, uh, will call themselves Christians but are not. So we'll call those pretenders. And then we'll finally see the promises for those that are uh, truly disciples of Jesus. And as always, uh, we want to get a context for where we're at. Uh, as we study and as we read Scripture, uh, you want to do that. You want to zoom out a little bit because of a, a text without a context is just a pretext. And so we want to we zoom out and we want to look at the full context of where we're at. And so here, John chapter 15, Jesus is with his disciples and they're traveling from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so we celebrated Advent, the first coming of Christ. Last week, Jesus was a baby in a manger. And now we are fast forwarding three years. Jesus is now heading towards the garden. What is going to be the night before he would ultimately be arrested and crucified? And this also comes on the heels of two things that Jesus just said to his disciples in the upper room. And these things would have very likely left them in a, in a little bit of shock or, or a state of confusion um, and, and maybe, maybe just some sadness uh, if, you kind of think about, um, if you kind of think about these things. First, uh, he told them that he was going to be leaving them soon. Now, think about it this way. These men had left everything to follow him, right? It's not like they just you know, said, hey, I'm going to follow you. And then they went to their normal jobs and they still got up at the same time, went to bed at the same time, had the same routines with their families and their friends. And they just sprinkled a little bit of Jesus on top. That's not what they did. They left their jobs, their homes. They left everything. They left everything and for three years followed him. And then he says, guess what, fellas? I'm going to be leaving you. So it's like, well, now what? I quit my job. I, I, I left everything to follow you. Um, what are we going to do now? What are we going to go back to? And second, he said that one of them is going to betray him. And at this point, they had no idea it was Judas yet. Now, Judas did leave the room. We see in John chapter 13, Jesus tells Judas to go and do what you have desired to go do, right? Basically, hey, go, go sell me out. That's what he tells Judas to do. He gets up and he goes. But the, 
The apostles in the room had no idea it was him. They, uh, Judas was like the treasurer of the group, and so they just figured he was going to go out. And as John 13 says, you know, maybe they thought he was going to go buy food for the festival. He was going to go do something else, but it certainly wasn't to go betray Jesus. In fact, they looked inwardly. They probably do. Uh, they're, they're a little more spiritual than us, because I think if, if Jesus were to say to us, hey, one of you is going to betray me, I think probably many of us in this room would be looking around and like whispering to your spouse, like, I think it's them. <laughs> I think that's the one over there. That's the betrayer. Uh, but no, it's, it's, they looked inwardly. They were like, is it me? Is it me? So they're in this sense of shock. They're in the sense of confusion. They're, they're kind of in the sense of sadness as they left the upper room. But in these verses, verses 1 through 11, Jesus kind of addresses their worries and settles their hearts for, with, with both of these issues and both of these statements. And in effect, Jesus is going to say to them that he's going to continue to care for them, that he's going to continue to be there with them in a real way. Despite the early, earthly separation, he will remain connected in a deep way and in a real way. Uh, Jesus will be the, their ultimate provider of peace, their ultimate provider of wisdom, of guidance, of strength, of joy. He will be an ever-present supplier of everything that they need. And this is a very practical message for us today uh, in our Christian lives. As we, look to the year, as we look at the year to come, and as we look at the things that we uh, want to do and, and try to do and the goals and all of those things, uh, we can look no further than our Lord Jesus Christ because it is ultimately him that is the supplier of everything we need and not these other things. And so we come to, in verse 1, we come to this picture that Jesus paints for us uh, of how things are going to look relationally. It says in verse 1, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Uh, every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. And so there's this imagery of a vine, there's a gardener, there, and there's branches. There's really two types of branches, the, the fruitful and the productive and the unfruitful, which is not productive. And, and Jesus here is using an allegory to drive this point. Uh, it's a little bit different than a parable, which we're kind of used to. Jesus taught a lot in parables. And I won't go into all the distinctives between an allegory and a parable, but, uh, but what I will say is, is in an allegory, it is, it is incredibly important to make sure you look at the text-by-text text or point-by-point point details. Whereas a parable, it's kind of the one driving point, and there's a lot of moving parts. Uh, a, a, an allegory is point-by-point. Point. So uh, in the spirit of this being an allegory, we want to look at it in, in a literal manner, point-by-point. Point. And so this first element is the vine. Jesus says he is the true vine. Uh, in, the, in the ancient Near East, and very much so uh, today, uh, grape vineyards are everywhere. Uh, it is the most dominant agriculture in, in that time and in that land. Uh, the vine was a symbol of national life for the people of Israel. So think, you know, for America, it's like stars and stripes or like the, the eagle, right? The, the vine is, is, a national, is a symbol of national life. Uh, it appeared on coins. It was minted on coins. Uh, I, really, I think the first earliest coins they have where it was minted that, that, we've, that we have is during the uh, Maccabean period, which is about 150 years before Christ was born. Uh, in fact, a massive uh, 105-foot or 70 cubits uh, high golden grapevine decorated with gold leaves and golden grapes and golden branches and twigs and all of everything gold a massive golden grapevine covered around and on top of the entrance to the temple proper of, of Herod's temple. 
Uh, and people would come, people of, of nobility would come, and they would embellish it all throughout. This was, this was a massive thing. And so the disciples immediately recognized what Jesus was saying. And even though we can't necessarily sympathize with them uh, now, uh, the vine to them was, was of sacred importance in their eyes. Uh, but Jesus doesn't simply relate himself to just any vine. Uh, he says two remarkable things. He says, the very first two words of verse one, he says, I am. This is the seventh and final great I am statement made by Jesus that John records for us in the gospel of John. Earlier he said, and many of you will have heard these things or know these things, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. And finally, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This I am statement is a declaration of his deity, and it is a statement of his sufficiency. Back in Exodus chapter 3, Moses asked God what he should call God or what he should name him to the people of Israel, how he should have the people of Israel refer to God. And God responded in verse 14, and he said, I am that I am. There was no mistaking what the disciples heard Jesus saying. Jesus here is saying, I am God. I am the source of all of your needs. This is the only vine by which the grace of God comes into your life. It comes through the Lord Jesus Christ, which means to be disconnected from this vine is to be disconnected from God himself and to be disconnected from the grace of God. And so Jesus also says he is the true vine. Israel was often referred to in the Old Testament as the vine of God. In, in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, he says, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. There you go. <laughs> the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. Uh, there's other verses, uh, but here's another one. Psalm 80, You dug up a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it, and you cleared a, a place for it, and it took root and filled the land. That is a summation of the entire Old Testament narrative. Jesus, not the nation of Israel, is the authentic, real, genuine, true vine. That's what it means when Jesus says true, the genuine, the real, the authentic. It also implies that there are counterfeit vines. Or there are vines that are not true vines. So think about the self-righteous Pharisees who led the people of God away from the very heart of God and the very law of God. Uh, they dressed themselves up figuratively as vines, that they were the vine, that, that everything came from them, but they were not. Uh, they weren't the true vine. Jesus is, and there is life in Jesus. All life will come to us from and through this one true vine. And here Jesus represents himself as the sole source to supply every need that they have. And so this is comforting to them. When they hear that I'm going to leave you and one of you is going to betray me, Jesus says everything that you will ever need will come from me. And this is a reminder for ourselves today. We have a tendency, especially on days like this, where we look somewhere else or to something else or to some program or to something to supply our needs or to someone else even, to supply our needs. But it is Jesus Christ who is the exclusive and the complete source of everything that we have and everything that we will ever need. 
Jesus then moves to the second element. Uh, This is of the gardener. Some of your translations may say vine dresser. Uh, This is a reference to the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. Jesus speaks constantly of the ministry of God the Father. In John 14 alone, the Father uh, is referenced 22 times in chapter 14. Nine times, I'm sorry, uh, nine times in chapter 15 and 16, uh, 11 times. This illustration makes it clear that the Father is overseeing everything in your Christian life. Everything that you have comes from the Father. He sent the Son to live and to die on our behalf, and He sends the Spirit in the moment of our conversion to equip you and to guide you. He is God the Father is the architect and the author of everything good in our lives, and He cares for everything in your spiritual life. So this imagery of the gardener means that he tills the ground, that he plants the seed, that he waters, he fertilizes, he cultivates growth, he prunes, he he cuts off dead branches, he harvests the fruit, he diligently and tirelessly works and cares for the vineyards. And when the harvest has come, he looks at the fruit with such gladness and joy, and then he rightly receives all of the glory and the honor for what he has done because he has caused the growth. Everything that comes, everything comes by the ministry of the Father, and he is actively involved in your spiritual growth and progress. Now, the final elements of the illustration come to us as two types of branches. You have the unfruitful, and then you have the fruitful branches. And this part of verse 2 brings a certain level of difficulty, uh, but the key to understanding verse 2 is found in verse 6, which we're going to see a little bit more clearly in a moment. And so in the context of what just happened in the upper room, there are some Bible scholars that will call this unfruitful branch, they'll refer to it as the Judas branch. In other words, a follower of Jesus who is a professor but not a possessor. This would be the religious but still lost. This would be those caught up in the activity and the flow of church but does not have Christ inside their own heart and inside their own soul. It is dead wood meaning that there is no fruit, no productivity whatsoever. There's no, it's dead. There's no, it's not like a little bit of fruit that's just hanging off. There's zero fruit. It's dead. It's almost as if like they're superficially attached because there is no life running through it and to it from the vine. But that fruit is evidenced by what is seen on the outside. You look at a plant and you're like, that plant's doing good, right? Because you can see the fruit meaning there is no faking it or pretending to be a fruitful branch. Uh, So the gardener comes, and the gardener comes and he removes it. Uh, To remove it means just that. It literally means to be taken away, to be removed completely uh, and gathered for the fire. There is no coming back from that. Uh, If there is no fruit, there is no saving faith. That's what this verse is getting at. Then there's the productive and the fruitful branch. Uh, A true believer in Christ bears fruit. It naturally or supernaturally, actually, grows off of the branch because of the life sap, if you will, that runs through it from the vine. But we see that the gardener is also tending to these branches as well, not just the dead ones. He's tending to all of the branches. And to these ones, he prunes them. Uh, Pruning is much different than what we saw with the dead branches and cutting and removing. But pruning also has a carefully intended uh, purpose by the gardener. It's so that it produces more fruit. So for those of you that do not have a gardening background, 
Uh, It may seem harsh or counterintuitive to think about it this way, that you're pruning and you're cutting away things that are actually doing well, but it's so that they can do better. When that happens, the vitality and the productivity returns even stronger and more abundant every time. So you can sum this up as saying that it is painful, but it is purposeful. Uh, God the Father is actively involved in a real way, and he's trimming and he's pruning back that which hinders spiritual growth. But what does that look like? What does God use to prune? Uh, A few things to help us understand this more. He uses the word, uh, the truth of Scripture. Uh, We hear it, we read it, uh, we study it, we live in it. It brings conviction and repentance, which causes us to change direction. Uh, That is what it means by the word laying bare on our lives. Uh, There's also controlling providence. Uh, All of us in this room will come to realize or have come to realize at some point that there are things in our life that have just become too important to us or they have distracted us from our focus on the Lord. And so by God's hand of providence, he removes those things. And those may be seemingly good things to us in our minds at the moment, things like possessions or things like a job or things like relationships or even health. If those things are removing us and distracting us from focusing on him, God in his providence will remove those things. And although it's painful, God has a master plan and a purpose for his people to bring about greater spiritual growth. Because again, our Christian life is not about us, it's about him. God brings trials and difficult circumstances. Those can be a means of pruning at times. God also can bring moments of divine discipline. Uh, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. Proverbs fifteen thirty two. 32. Uh, anyone who ignores discipline despises himself. Uh, but whoever listens to correction acquires good sense. So in every way and in every case, God is actively involved in our lives, for our spiritual growth and for our sanctification. We will bear more fruit. And, and, and it's for our good and for his glory. So there's the vine, there's the gardener, there's two types of branches. But what is this fruit that's mentioned now six times in these first eight verses? Uh, the fruit has been said to mean a lot of different things. One of the more popular things I've heard, at least growing up, was the fruit was uh, conversions. The more people you convert is the more fruit. I don't know if you've heard that. I've heard that a lot. Uh, but that's not it. Because the fruit here, simply put, is Christ-likeness. The fruit of the Spirit is what we were talking about here. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's humility. Uh, It's pure motives. It's godly character. It's selflessness. It's godly conduct, meaning the way you act, the way you speak, how you present yourself externally and internally should be godly, and it should point others around you to God. And so as we walk this narrow path and we grow in Christ, this fruit should be more and more abundant and ever-growing. The things that hinder growth are pruned. There's not one of us in this room that will have an easy path in life where there's not going to be seasons of pruning. Pruning is evidence that God is working in your life. God knows exactly what he's doing. And then in verse 3, Jesus says, You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. And so, at first glance, this might seem a little bit out of place. In verses 1 through 2, he's talking about the vine and branches. And then verse 4 and on, he continues the allegory and the illustration of the branches and the vine. But this verse is so critical. 
A couple of chapters earlier in John chapter 13, Jesus was washing his disciples' feet in the upper room. You guys probably remember that story. And before he explains the meaning of what he was doing to them, he tells them that they are already clean, but not all of you. Then later the same evening, he tells them that all of them, he's talking to all of them, that they are clean. The difference in those maybe hour or two, we'll guess, is Judas. This clues the disciples into what happened in the upper room. Uh, Judas was with them there when he said, you're clean, but not all of you. And now all of a sudden they're, they're on their walk. Everyone's there but Judas. And he says, you're all clean. Judas was not clean, meaning that he was not regenerated. Uh, that's a theological, a biblical term that ref- simply refers to the supernatural miracle of new birth in your life. A couple of cross-references for you would be Titus 3.5. He, meaning God, saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Also, John chapter 3, verse 5 Jesus answered, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so this is the picture. This is the illustration that Jesus, who's the master teacher, uh, taught us here. And so the big application question, again, truth has to lead to application. Uh, The application for us here is, where are you? There are only two categories of branches here. There's not a third. There's not an in-between. There are two There's the fruitful and the unfruitful, and we know what the fruit looks like. So the fruitful and the unfruitful, the saved and the lost, the saints and the ain'ts, is what I like to say. Sounds, it rhymes. Where are you? Which one are you? Consider which one right now. Consider which one you are. Take inventory of your heart as we examine uh, this text further. The second point is the command. Jesus continues by saying, remain in me and I in you. He continues the illustration of the vine and the branches. As the branches must remain connected to the vine to produce fruit, you as a Christian must remain connected to Christ to have an abundant Christian life. The word remain here means to abide. It means to stay close or to dwell in, to persevere, which means to not go in and out and to and fro, but by trusting and obeying. This is the dominant theme in this passage. It's used 11 times in these verses and 40 times in the entire Gospel of John. And the word here, the verb to remain, is an imperative verb, meaning it is a command from the Lord Jesus. That means it's a decision that we have to continually make every hour, every day, every week, throughout our entire life. At any given moment in our Christian life, there are varying degrees by which we are abiding, but we are abiding nonetheless. Sometimes it's a little bit more than others. At times, we're in our closest connection to Christ and his word and prayer and worship and our constant following throughout the day. At other times, we're distracted or even preoccupied. We're just simply too busy to be in his word. We're too busy to pray. Uh, We're too busy to worship. And those times, you're not abiding. You're on cruise control trying to just coast through your own messy efforts. And so this key... This, this verse here, this is the key that unlocks the entire passage for us. It means that we are to live in close fellowship with the Lord, to be constantly in his word, for his word to be constantly in you, to not be distracted, but to seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. It means to live in obedience to his word. 
And we're going to unpack that a, a little bit more shortly. It means to trust Him in everything, to rely on His strength and not your own. It means to trust and rely on His timing and not rely on your own. It means to rest in His love. His love is greater than you can possibly imagine, and He loves and cares for you beyond your imagination. This is what Paul had in mind in Philippians 1.21 when he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because to Paul, so long as he was on this earth, his whole life was Christ. Christ was not a category in a list of categories. Everything was Christ. But to die was gain. It meant that he gained real, eternal, ever-present communion and fellowship with Christ himself. So the sum and the substance of the Christian life is Christ. We follow, we, we obey, we worship, we adore, we serve. That's exactly why we're called Christians. We, we preach and we teach the, the triune God, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but even God the Father points, to, points us to Christ. God the Spirit points us to Christ. Everything is Christ. And as we abide in Him, He abides in us. And this, and this, this part of this verse is not an issue of losing salvation or at some point being completely disconnected. That's not what it means. It simply means that those who are truly in Christ, as we draw near to Him, He will draw near to us. As we trust in the Lord Jesus and we walk in obedience to Him, His presence will be made real in our lives. The fullness of His provision, the lifeblood of the vine flows into our souls in greater measure. And then he says, just as the branch. Now, this means that Jesus wants us to know why this is important. No branch can produce its own fruit. No branch can produce its own growth. The vine does all of that. The only thing that we can do is bear the fruit, or maybe better understood, the only thing that we can do is display the fruit as we remain in the vine. A lot of us will try to do all of these other things and try to produce fruit. It's the vine that produces the fruit. You are the instrument of display, right? So to remain in Christ is the daily prerequisite for anyone to experience the fullness of Jesus in our lives. And then in verse 5, he essentially restates what he just said in verse 4, but he adds much fruit. You will live an abundant and rich spiritual life in which there will be much fruit, fruit of the Spirit, fruit of Christ's likeness, anything and everything that is in the will of God for your life. But apart from remaining, you can do what? What does it say there? I know you all see the word. You can do nothing. It's a little bit of a gut punch, I know. But nothing means nothing. And you may be thinking, well, I can do a lot of things. And I've done okay so far. I think, I think I can do some things. And that is your problem. Apart from Christ, you can do nothing that is acceptable and pleasing to God. Uh, you can do nothing that has eternal significance. You can do nothing that brings God glory. And that is why this is the priority for us in this passage. This commands to remain to be completely and totally dependent on Christ and to completely and totally trust and obey Him, to live in constant dependence. 
which means not looking to yourself, but looking to Christ, to set your mind on the things above and not on the things of the earth, uh, to live in constant um, dependence, to live in constant obedience, which means uh, constant uh, living to the commands of Christ, or we are deprived of the lifeblood that comes through the vine. There is nothing that you or I can do without Christ's enabling power and is, and is just his enabling in general. We can do nothing without Christ. This is such a simple but yet profound statement. So at any given moment, you're either walking in the flesh or you're walking in the Spirit. And then in verse 6, Jesus now addresses the results of the fruitless branch. In a way, he's bringing to focus the actions of Judas and really anyone who professes Christ but does not possess Christ. Anyone without spiritual fruit whatsoever. Anyone without saving relationship with Christ Jesus yet claiming to be a Christian is just dead wood. That is why we call this the pretender. And this is given to us in categories and not degrees. Remember, a Christian will bear fruit as they abide in Christ. There's, there's no such thing as a true disciple of Jesus that does, not abide, that does not abide at all. Jesus gives us a progressive list of five things that happen to those that don't abide. Uh, they are thrown away or thrown aside like a branch. Right? They're just tossed to the side. They wither away. That is, that is a, that's a thing. That's a process. They wither away. And then they're gathered uh, this is an image of, of similarly to Matthew 13 when Jesus says the angels will come and he will gather and he will separate the wheat and the tares. And then fourthly, they're thrown into the fire. Uh, this is a reference to the fire of divine judgment, of, of eternal hell, if you will. And then five, lastly, they are burned. Uh, this is a constant burning. So that means that they are always perishing yet never perishing. This is a severe pronouncement on the sin of unbelief. And so you can see here how serious it is to come in and to play church, but not to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. To just simply go through the motions of Christianity and yet never be born again within your own heart. Just think about Judas. He spent three years with Jesus. He taught. He went out with the other disciples in pairs to preach the gospel that Jesus had given them. He was the treasurer of the apostles. Uh, he helped Jesus. He was involved in the ministry up to his eyeballs, yet he was never born again. He was dead wood that ultimately meets this end. This is a horrific sin. And do not think that you can be forgiven of any sin at all if you are in the sin of unbelief. Why? Because it is only through belief and faith in Christ and his atoning death on the cross for your sin that any sin can be forgiven at all. John 3.18, anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. The sad reality today is that churches are filled with many pretending branches. The lie of easy believism has bought. There is no heart transfer, uh, transformation. There is no real spiritual fruit. It's just show up, check the church box on your to-do list today. And so many people come in and they hang fake fruit on a dead branch like a Christmas tree. It's the many on the wide path. It's those that Jesus refers to when they say, Lord, did we not do such and such in your name? And he says, depart from me for I never knew you. 
The gardener knows. He prunes or he takes away. And this truth should cause each one of us to examine our hearts and test if we are in the faith. Because fruitlessness not only brings the threat of fire, but it robs God of the glory that is rightly his to begin with. And finally, in verses 7 through 11, Jesus makes a stark contrast from verse 6. So it's going to be like we're crossing, from, we're crossing the Red Sea. It's like the threat of the Egyptian army is behind us, and we're about to head into the land of milk and honey. So this is a massive jump here. He gives four promises to those that remain. And these promises are just as true for you and me today as they were for the disciples when Jesus spoke them. They're equally relevant. The first one we find is in verse 7. We see the promise of answered prayer. If you remain in me and stay connected to Christ and his words move into your heart and, and live inside of you, this, this is what it means by the word of Christ dwelling richly in you, the result will be answered prayer. This is not a magic wand to get whatever selfish desire you can come up with. Uh, this is not health, wealth, and prosperity. Uh, this is none of that trash. This if, if this means that if his word is abiding in you, every prayer is directed and governed by the word of God. You will naturally, or rather supernaturally, be praying for the things that glorify God and align with him. And so as you grow in Christ and abide in his word, and his word begins to, to live in you, your will will begin to align with his will, and therefore your prayers are in accordance with the will of God. You'll be diligently seeking in prayer, the things that God desires. That's what that means. The second is assurance, and this is really assurance of salvation. The fruit of the true believer is a consequence of Christ's redemptive work. And since the Father is glorified in the Son, and the fruitfulness of the believer is part and parcel the way that Jesus glorifies the Father, the more fruit that we bear brings more glory to God the Father. That's what this means. And so as you see abundant fruit, spiritual fruit in your life, uh, that's what brings the greatest assurance of salvation. It's not the altar call. It's not church membership. It's not even baptism. You can do all of those things and still be a lost sinner. It is a changed heart and a changed life evidenced by supernatural fruit being produced in your life. It can't be faked. It can't be pretended. As you see God at work in and through you, producing love, joy, peace, patience, guidance, uh, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, uh, you know that God is living inside of you. Thirdly, it's abounding love. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me. Think about the depth of the love of God. Uh, think about the depth that the love God has for his Son. He loves him fully, eternally, constantly, fervently. That is the love that the Lord Jesus has for us. We cannot even begin to comprehend how much Jesus loves us. And that love for us is the motivator for abiding in his love. And so how do we do that? Jesus answers that for us in verse 10, if we keep his commands. As parents, my wife and I, we have taught our kids what's called the circle of blessing. It's kind of this thing, have you ever done like a biblical parenting class? Sometimes they talk about this thing. It's, it's kind of widely known, I guess. Um, think of it this way. Uh, if they, as our kids, obey our commands in our, in our instruction, they experience the fullness of blessing and demonstration of love from us as parents. Uh, disobedience is a decision to move outside of that circle of blessing. And as a parent, I desperately desire for them to return into that circle, right? Which that has to require discipline and correction. 
But to be honest, uh, in those moments of disobedience, I'm really just not that motivated to lavish them with all the love and blessing that I could give them right then and there, right? But it does not change the fact that they are my children and I am their father. That relationship is secure. The same is true in the Christian's relationship with God. Don't be fooled into thinking that it does not matter if you obey or disobey God. Disobedience removes us from the full outpouring of the daily things that the Lord has intended for us. Some may think that that sounds a little legalistic, and I would say that living your Christian life without any concern for God's commands is a dangerous path to go down. In fact, the theological term for that is called antinomialism. It's, it's dangerous. So notice, verse 9 precedes verse 10. We obey out of motivation for his love. It is not burdensome. His commands are not burdensome. We love Jesus, and we love to follow him. In other words, it's because of his love that we keep his commands. And as you obey, you are at the very nucleus of God's will for your life. And lastly, the promise of abounding joy. Jesus says in verse 11, I have told you these things, which is all the things that we just read in verses 1 through 10, uh, so that, meaning that there is a greater purpose to this truth. The so that means this truth is not an end to itself. It's a means to a greater end. Truth without application defeats the purpose of truth. He says, that my joy may be in you. This isn't a joy that's similar to mine. This isn't a joy that just looks like mine. But the very exact joy that is in the heart of Christ Jesus is the joy that is transferred to your heart. And not that it would just be in you, but that our joy would be complete, which means full and overflowing joy. What more could you ask for? What a staggering promise the Lord Jesus makes here. Insurmountable joy that overcomes all, that, uh, overcomes all challenges, all obstacles, all trials, all hardship, all loss. Do you need that joy this morning? Do you need that joy, that complete joy, this prom- these promises that Christ makes here in this passage? If so, remain in Christ. Do you need the peace that surpasses all understanding? Remain in Christ. Do you need wisdom and direction for your life? Do you need wisdom as you look and plan for the next year? Your priority, your only, the only thing you should concern yourself with is remaining in Christ. Do you desire to discern God's will for your life? Remain in Christ. Do you need strength to overcome the daily temptations and, the, and any of the challenges that can come your way? remain in Christ? Do you need the fullness of the love of God in your life today? Remain in Christ. Draw near to him, be close with him, be in his word, let his word be in you, be in total dependence and obedience to Christ Jesus, and it will go well with your soul. Hold fast to Jesus, because he holds fast to you beyond any measure or any capability or any possibility that you can imagine. You cannot imagine how much Christ holds on to you. And we're going to sing that song here at the end. He holds on to you because if you were given the option of trying to hold on to Christ, you couldn't. He holds on to you. Hold fast to him. It's because he loves us that we run to him. If you have Jesus, you have everything. If you find yourself without Jesus, without any spiritual fruit from the true vine, from the true vine's pulsating life, 
You have nothing. You are nothing but, but dead wood to be collected for the fire. And this morning, Jesus offers himself to you. If you are sitting here and you have been playing church and you have been hanging fake fruit on dead branches like ornaments on a tree, if you deep down know that you have been pretending this whole time and you know that you have no real spiritual fruit, repent and turn to Christ. He is here for you. If you this morning have never entrusted your soul to him, if you have never confessed your sinfulness to him, if you have never repented and denied yourself and taken up your cross to follow him, he desires to come into your life and abide in you. You need to know that Jesus is nearer to you today, right now, than he is to the person sitting next to you. But you must first believe and trust in him. And when you do, he will cleanse you. He will wash your sin as white as snow. He will cast your sin as far as the east is to the west. He will come in and he will live and abide in you. And this is the greatest invitation that has ever and will ever be offered to you. And then one day, when it is all said and done, that Jesus that we have been abiding with, that we have been following, that we have been given the entirety of our lives too. When it's all said and done, he will carry us home to the joy of God the Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, uh, we just thank you for the truth uh, that is in your word. We thank you for Jesus and the sacrifice that he became on our behalf uh, so that we may have life uh, in him, we may be restored to right relationship with you. Father, may these words just resonate in our souls and in our minds and in our hearts. May they transform us this morning from one degree of glory to the next. For those that don't know you, God, that you would just keep working on their hearts and let them see the goodness of your love and the greatness of your love, uh, your sovereignty, your, your majesty, your sufficiency. We don't have to run to all these other things, but we can just abide in you. Uh, help, this, help us see this truth and, and be real for us as we leave this place this morning. We love you. We praise you. And it's in the name of your son, Christ, we pray. Amen.